Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we're continuing to discuss the report on the violence at Pride last year. Cam Croach will join us to discuss the reaction to the report. Andrew Goldberg returns for his weekly segment on employment concerns during COVID-19. And the mayors of Haldeman and Norfolk protested the decision made by the Ontario government to keep their areas into phase one of the economic recovery. They decided to get socially distant haircuts to prove a point. We'll talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We want to get back to what the big story was this week, of course, and that was the uh, report that was issued by Scott Bergman of uh, Cooper, Sandler, Shimei, and Bergman, LLP. Uh, Mr. Bergman, of course, was uh, commissioned to do this report uh, about the uh, incidents that happened in Pride Week last year, just about a year ago, in fact, and specifically, of course, at Gage Park, but there are some other things that are included in this. We talked about it yesterday on the show, but uh, the... uh, culmination of this if it's going to be the culmination of this may well be tomorrow the police services board meeting uh, mr bergman will be there to uh, talk about his report and uh, to talk to the police services board about uh, their reactions to it i should also mention programming note that uh, scott bergman will be on our program the following morning on friday morning uh, to talk about his findings and uh, the process that happened but in the meantime it's time for the community to respond and react to what's in this report and uh, to, well, I guess speculate to a certain extent about what's going to happen going forward here. Uh, Cameron Croach is a community member associated with Pride Hamilton. Uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us his take on this. Cameron, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be here today. Glad to be back with you, Bill. Well, you know, you and I talked on Monday about the uh, the other report that we'll get to in a second. That was the one that was done for the Office of Independent Police Review Director. Uh, and uh, essentially basically said that, well, hey, the police did everything right they were supposed to do. I'm paraphrasing, but I mean, you know, to put this into one sentence, that uh, police prepared a proper operational plan and carried it out as they were supposed to. That seemed to be the essence of that report. You and I discussed that and said, well, let's contrast that uh, with what we saw from Mr. Bergman's report. So let's let's contrast that. How do you see one report against the other? The police reporting on themselves in an echo chamber, and so there's no surprise there that they looked at a very, very narrow band of complaints from a few individuals and said, we don't see anything to act on here. Uh, and that's report number one that was leaked out on Friday. The independent review, which looks at this from a more systemic perspective, looks at things that happened before Pride, during Pride, and after Pride. They had someone outside the city come in and do this, and it was done at an arm's length, whereas the other report, the report you mentioned first, was done by an HPS officer who wrote a report, uh, frankly, for their bosses uh, to tell them that everything was fine. So the distinction here is that one is independent and one is written by the police themselves. Let's talk a little bit of the Bergman report, if we could. Uh, you and I had conversations days after the incident happened last year, Cameron, uh, and you gave us an accounting of how you saw things roll out, not even just on that particular day, but a couple of days previous when you told us that you actually did have a conversation with somebody at Hamilton Police Services about what may be happening at, at Gage Park that's this particular weekend. And by the way, uh, unfortunately for all of us, I guess you were absolutely right about what was going to happen. But is, is Mr. Bergman's account, uh, which of course is based on a number of interviews that he did with people uh, that were involved in that, is, is it more accurate than... than than the, well, previously on the report, obviously, but is it, does it reflect what you had talked about and what you saw and what you witnessed that weekend? Yeah, for the most part, most part Bill, it does. I looked at the report, Mr. Bergman did, and it's pretty conclusive in terms of the kinds of interviews he's done and how it reflects what people in the community said. 
Um, frankly, it's sad that we had to pay $600,000 to Mr. Bergman and his firm to write a report that echoed what the community has been saying publicly for more than a year. Uh, there's a lot of, of detail in here, too, and some stuff that, uh, that I know that in subsequent conversations we had with others who were there uh, that, uh, that talked about uh, some discrepancies in what you said and what some of the other people that were there on, on either side of the issue, about who was involved and who said what and who pushed whom, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he also, as, as you know, of course, having read the report, uh, that Mr. Bergman also touched uh, in great detail about some of the comments made by Chief Gert uh, in subsequent pro programs. He was on our show, of course, two or three different times talking about uh, the police response to that as well. And uh, there's one conclusion here that Mr. Bergman draws uh, in his piece uh, that says, to many, the Chief's comments on the Bill Kelly show seem to imply that policing of the event was contingent upon event organizers endorsing and welcoming police, according to Bergman. Do you agree with that? It's one of the more troubling statements in the report. This notion that community volunteers at an organization that makes thousands of dollars, you know, a year is nonprofit and has a tiny, tiny budget that would astound people, I assume, is responsible for telling police how to do some portion of their job as part of a $171 million budget. And the report goes farther than that, Bill. It says a lot of really damning things like, despite the fact that the Hamilton Police Service applied for a recruitment booth and knew when Pride was, senior officers still had no idea the event was happening um, two days beforehand when they were creating an operational plan. So I don't think there's anything that any community volunteer pride myself or anyone else in the city could possibly have done to uh, make that situation better. The police bungled it from day one. I want to respond to that, if you would. And, and I'm not going to sit here and say, hey, somebody's not telling the truth here. But that statement, and Mr. Bergman did talk about that because that was what he was told during his interviews. I assume it's somebody from uh, Hamilton Police Services about that, that they were not aware that there was going to be an event at Gage Park. Really? During Pride Week and when there has been one in, in past years? There was one last the year before that, which, by the way, resulted in some incidents that, that caused some controversy. But they were not aware, really? Even after you'd had a conversation just two days before that with somebody from police services about what was going to happen, where it was going to happen in the park? It uh, really defies logic. One would presume that if you sent your own officers out to a park in 2018 to stand there in front of a bunch of street evangelists and white supremacists, that you would have some ability to predict that they would arrive in the same spot the next year at the same time. It's, there's, a, there's an incongruity here that, that I, I find fascinating, and, and this is why I think, well, ju not just the meeting that tomorrow with the Police Services Board, but I think in subsequent discussions, now that this is out, uh, and we can all read this and we can all compare and contrast this with uh, some of the stuff that we've heard and, and of course, the other report as well. Uh, I'd, I'd like somebody to address some of these inconsistencies and find out exactly what's going on here. I mean, because as long as there's going to be a, you know, a, this story versus this story and some big, big gaps in between, uh, I mean, how are we actually going to, you know, find some common ground here to try to, to rectify a lot of these problems, which as you've mentioned in the past, and many others have mentioned in the past, have not just been going on for the last 12 months. They've been happening for a long time now. Yeah, they're digging their heels in, Bill. I mean, these kinds of statements that you're seeing in this report being reported by Mr. Bergman 
have already been made publicly for the most part by myself, other people involved in Pride, and other people in the city who were there. And what the chief responded to during a Hamilton Police Services board meeting when he was confronted with this very issue of whether or not they knew there would be people there, he said, well, we're not clairvoyant. Um, you know, we can't predict and prognosticate, were the words he used, something to that effect. They're digging their heels in. They've been contacted by you and many other people to comment on this and are purposely waiting until Thursday's Hamilton Police Services Board so they can do this in a controlled environment that they run. This is about a system of policing bill that is rotten to the core. And that's why I continue to support black community leaders and other people of color in Hamilton when they say we need to defund the Hamilton Police, take those resources and reinvest them in community services that actually protect people and make them safe. Because it's clear, and it should be clear from this report, and it should have been clear many years before, that more money and more police will not make our communities safe. Uh, we did reach out, uh, by the way, to the mayor's office, uh, uh, and uh, he issued a statement. Uh, and I actually just got a text from, from the mayor just a little while ago. Uh, as chair of the Police Services Board, I wish to extend my thanks to Mr. Bergman and my appreciation for the work he has done resulting in his report and his recommendations. I look forward to Mr. Bergman's presentation to the Hamilton Police Services Board on Thursday, June 11, 2020. Out of respect for Mr. Bergman, I will reserve my comments until his presentation is complete. Uh, so I don't know what that entails, actually, Cameron, whether that means uh, that, uh, that there's going to be a Q&A, whether there's going to be some sort of a discussion about this. Uh, but I find it interesting, though, that when this meeting convened, and of course, because of COVID, this is going to be a virtual uh, police services board meeting. It's not going to be held in the council chambers where the public can attend, uh, as you, I'm sure you'd like to be able to do these days. Uh, but they're going to have both reports. Both reports are on the agenda that tell two very different stories of what happened that day. Yeah, I presume that they are going to uh, want to use some kind of um, juvenile compare and contrast exercise, you know. Our internal officer said that we're cool, um, but this other guy said that, um, you know, things aren't good here, so we really don't know what to make of this. And that's not what I predict will happen, but it's certainly a tool uh, that's been used many, many times in the past, just like that statement you read, Bill, which says that the mayor is waiting to make a comment out of respect for Mr. Bergman. Um, what does that say? It's a, it's a game here of respectability politics, right? Trying to point at everybody who's commenting now as if they're not doing that. Mr. Bergman himself released the report that came out on Monday because he wanted to have people have access to that report and be able to comment on it. This mystery thing about the other report you're talking about that the police wrote themselves is, mm -hmm. for me, not only suspect, um, but something that itself should be looked into. It's been in the hands of the Hamilton Police Services Board since December of 2019, and everyone listening should ask themselves why on earth that thing came out the Friday before the independent review um, and where that came from. That's beside the point, I would say, though, because I think that the focus should be on this independent report because it's the one that is done at an arm's length, and it's the one that taxpayers invested $600,000 in, and it says that the police were completely inept that their operational plan was a disaster, that they did consult with Pride before, during, or after, and that every single thing Chief Gert has done since Pride has further torn apart communities in Hamilton. When this meeting occurs tomorrow, uh, is it your expectation or your hope or whatever, Cameron, that the Police Services Board is going to have to 
choose one of these over the other and simply say this is where what, what we believe is happening because uh, like I say this is this is black and white there's there's this report and there's this report and there's not a whole lot of common ground in either one of them I think that this is exactly what they want uh, they want to have this kind of choice here so that they can rely on a bunch of recommendations and ask for apologies because frankly that's an easy way out for them look Bill, I expect the same status quo from stubborn old guard city councillors who run the Hamilton Police Services Board. There are seven people on that board. Four of them are appointed by council. Three of them are councillors. This is a further extension of the kind of politics we see in Hamilton. Um, It's very status quo. It's uh, not going to defy our expectations. Even if they do something like decide to fire Chief Gert or Chief Gert resigns, that's not going to solve a systemic issue here. The only thing that's going to happen to do that is to defund the police and reinvest that money in community services. Well, that's happening. I mean, that discussion, I should mention, is happening in other communities. Uh, Do you anticipate it's going to happen here? I don't imagine that these folks will go down that road or have that discussion. The mayor was on CH, I believe, where that discussion came up, and the mayor said the equivalent of, Um, things are fine, we're investing the money that needs to be invested at a municipal level, and it's the provincial and federal government's fault that there's not enough money for community services. That was his answer. He had nothing to say about the fact that the police services budget is $171 million, whereas communities and social services combined is $148 million. He can't answer that question, Um, and he's chosen to stay on the Hamilton Police Services Board despite saying he would leave and make space for other voices. So I'm not really sure what to make of this except for uh, it's the same old play from the old guard city council bill, and we're going to see it again and again. Do you expect a fulsome discussion about this tomorrow? I have no idea, to be honest with you, Bill. Uh, The conversations I've seen at the Hamilton Police Services Board seem scripted. Um, They seem based on a a playbook that we've all seen a hundred times. Um, and so I have no idea what to predict here. They've had days to sit and strategize about this and come up with how they're going to address it. Um, so I imagine it's going to play it as, exactly as they wish. There's no way for the public to delegate and participate in these meetings, and that's by design. But where does that leave the community? And I'm talking about the entire community here. And, and as you mentioned, and as we've talked about uh, in the last little while here, uh, in many people's minds, a fragmented community right now. Yeah, that's part of the problem for sure, when you're talking about communities, plural, um, there's no monolithic group. There's no one uh, person, myself included, who speaks for everybody. And what we've seen here, though, from leadership in our city is that they are 100% not interested in listening to the community. They had to go outside of the city to a group of folks who don't represent Hamilton's Two-Spirit or LGBTQIA plus communities pay them an exorbitant amount of money to write down what communities have been telling them for decades. They are simply are not interested in listening to what the community has to say. They need it to be stamped and authorized in a way that they can digest it. Um, and that tells me that they're not in a position to, to lead a community like this or have conversations with a community like this. And again, I don't see that changing in the short-term, Bill, because they're very entrenched in their views, as we've all seen. Cameron Croach, uh, Cameron, we'll see what happens tomorrow, and uh, I'm certain there will be more conversations between you and me and any other folks in this community that, uh, well, want to see something as, as a result of the uh, the work that uh, Mr. Bergman and others have done. Thanks so much for this today, though. We'll see what happens. 
Thanks, Bill. Have a good day. Great talking with you again. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's Wednesday. That means our weekly segment with uh, Andrew Goldberg, employment lawyer and associate at uh, Samfiro Tumarkin, uh, LLP. Uh, employmentlawyer.ca, of course, is the webpage. Uh, Andrew, how are you doing today? How's, how's the week been? Uh, the week's been good. It's been a beautiful week, as you know, so um, it's nice to see the weather's picking back up. It's interesting as, uh, you know, we follow the Prime Minister with his daily briefings uh, with updates about what's going on. Not a whole lot in the way of new programs, but some variations on the theme. And and one of the main ones, obviously, that we haven't talked about, I guess just about every week, Andrew, of course, is the CERB program, the uh, enhancement uh, for people's salaries that uh, that may be in dire circumstances because of this. And this is what the Prime Minister had to say yesterday about there the CERB program. There may be a number of people who uh, mistakenly took both the CERB and the wage subsidy because they weren't sure what they were going to do and they were really worried and they just took everything, those people will simply have to pay back uh, the one that they uh, shouldn't have been taken. And we're not looking at punishing people who made honest mistakes. So uh, juxtapose that with uh, what you and I talked about a few weeks ago when the program was first introduced, where they were saying and suggesting that, look, it err on the side of just getting the money and we'll sort this all out later on. Uh, I guess maybe there's been a lot more people applying. The numbers are astronomical, of course, with this. Uh, so if I'm one of these people that's drawing a, a CERB check right now, should I be concerned about this? Because, um, you know, the Prime Minister just reassured us and said, don't worry, I'm not going to send everybody to jail. But the sure. legislation still has a jail time element to this. I mean, I'm sure a lot of CERB recipients right now, Andrew, are calling people like you and saying, hey, what am I supposed to do here? Yeah, uh, that's entirely, you know, we've talked about uh, this this aspect of things from the beginning. So, you know, one of the problems, and, and really not necessarily through the fault of the government, is that at the beginning of this pandemic, uh, they really rushed this CERB program out in an effort to get money in people's pockets. The government did indicate that there would be fines, penalties, uh, the potential to pay it back, but there were no specifics at the time. So, you know, it's scary to read that if you improperly collected CERB, you could pay a fine of up to $5,000, pay uh, the improper CERB benefit you received up to two times the amount you received, and face possible jail time. So that's obviously going to scare people. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, I, I do trust Prime Minister Trudeau when he says that if it's an honest mistake, that it'll simply come down to paying back the amount of money you received, which is something that people should have been you know, aware of that possibility from the beginning. Uh, I mean, it's sad that that reality is happening. But I think on the other side of the coin, there are a lot of people who improperly received the CERB benefit and knew they were doing so. Uh, they knew they were making money more than $1,000 or that they didn't qualify because they hadn't earned 5000 in the previous year and decided to get the CERB benefit anyway to see if they could get away with it. So, I mean... I think if you're one of those people who genuinely made uh, an honest error in the sense that you believed you were entitled to the CERB benefit and weren't, uh, the likely outcome will be just to pay that amount back. But if you somehow knowingly applied for the CERB benefit um, in a situation where you were aware you should not have received it, you know, you could face fines of up to $5,000 plus uh, pay back the CERB benefit you received and then some. I think with respect to jail time, it's going to be very difficult for the government to apply that retroactively. So if you knowingly uh, falsified your CERB application for the first period, 
it will be hard for the government to say, okay, now that that's worthy of jail time. You know, more likely it'll be possible for the government to say, okay, going forward, if you do this, you could be subject to jail time. But to apply, you know, a, a potential exposure to a prison sentence to something done retroactively where there wasn't clear penalties in place at the time, I think that's excessive. I don't think that that's going to fly. I mean, there are other examples of, of other laws and statutes like this that, that do also include jail time. But, you know, whether you're dealing with Canada Revenue or, or in this particular case, a, a number of different agencies, they really just want their money back if, if they feel as if, they, if you've dipped into it a little too much. Uh, and you're right, there might be a fine or anything like that. But, I mean, jail is a last resort. And, and I, I, I don't even know why they included that in there. And I know that uh, one of uh, Mr. Trudeau's uh, MPs, Adam Vaughn from the Toronto area, has actually said, hey, let's just cool it here. Let's not scare people here because, you know, we." your point's well taken. Uh, they were told and the opposition party said, see, they, see, there should have been a screening process. And their argument on the other side of that was, yeah, but we've got to get the money up to them right now. And I can understand the, the haste in doing that because this thing hit a lot of people very, very hard very quickly. And I think they anticipated that this sort of thing was going to happen, that there was going to be some follow-up on this with the follow-up on, on, on you know, deciding what the penalties are going to be here. But uh, it certainly sends a, a shockwave, I guess, to a lot of people that are getting into this right now as to exactly uh, where they're going to go and, uh, you know, maybe a, a reevaluation as to where the money's going to be coming from. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, with respect to your comment that there are other forms of legislation that impose jail time for similar um, violations. I don't necessarily think the problem is that they're trying to. Firstly, I really don't believe many people will go to jail for this at all. I think if if anyone were to, it would have to be the most flagrant violators. Someone that there is no possible way they could have filled out the CERB eligibility form um, and believe that they were going to receive the CERB benefit. It was almost like a, a knowingly fraudulent activity. But that said, even if that were the case. I find it hard to believe that, you know, at the time they rolled out the CERB benefit, these penalties weren't clearly outlined. Um, they're now introducing the penalties after the fact. So in that circumstance, I don't believe they could retroactively say, oh, in, uh, you know, in April, you fraudulently applied for the CERB, and now that's going to be worthy of, of jail time. I think more likely it'll be something going forward. I don't think it'll be likely that anyone is going to have that uh, penalty imposed upon them at all. And to some degree, if it is a scare tactic, I mean, I don't necessarily have a problem with it because I think there are a lot of people out there violating uh, the CERB eligibility, trying to take advantage of the system. And I think those people, you know, we're at the point now where people have got the money in their pockets. I imagine that with the the new leave of absence that the Ontario implemented um, last week, there, there might be an extension of CERB, at least in the province. So I think uh, Prime Minister Trudeau just wants to ensure people aren't taking advantage of the system going forward. And I, I really do believe if it was simply an honest mistake, you just might have to pay it back somewhere down the line, and that's it. Uh, the last very quick point I want to make is that another proposal that's being included with the new uh, CERB amendment is that if you're an individual who's offered the opportunity to return to work um, and you simply refuse that reasonable opportunity when you have when it is possible for you to return to work uh, or decline a reasonable job offer when you're able to work that could uh, disqualify you for the CERB benefit as well requiring you to pay back that amount up to triple the amount that was improperly claimed so if you received two thousand improper dollars you could have to pay back up to six thousand dollars so 
for the listeners out there who are recalled back to work and simply don't want to go because they prefer to get their SERB benefit, uh, that's a very risky proposition. Uh, you should definitely consider going back to work. And, and you and I talked about that in previous shows as well. That we, we anticipated that something like that was going to happen. I mean, in, in the initial stages, of course, uh, we had hoped that there was going to be a call back to work really soon. But, uh, you know, here we are in June, and it's starting to happen now in trickles, unfortunately. Uh, but they're going to have to make those decisions. And I know that, uh, again, some of the opposition politicians were saying, ah, yeah, it's a disincentive, and it's going to make people just stay home and collect the check. Well, the government seems to have covered that base by saying, look, if you get the offer, you better have a darn good reason for turning it down. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, if, especially if your employer recalls you back, and it's simply a matter of, oh, I prefer to be home and getting the SERB benefit. In the same way we spoke about in the past that, you know, an employer has an obligation to ensure a safe workplace. And a lot of people out there don't want to return to work, irrespective of the safety measures that an employer is putting in place. So, if an employer is doing everything that the government suggested with respect to PPE and sanitation stations and hand-washing stations and social distancing, there's still people out there that do not want to return. And we've talked about in the past as well that, you know, just the fear of, of getting COVID is not enough to refuse a return to work. And I think this uh, amendment to the CERB um, uh, benefit kind of falls in line with that, where if your preference is just to stay home and collect CERB, that's not going to fly because benefit wasn't simply about, you know, free money to people that would prefer to stay home and not work and get $2,000 every four weeks. There's a lot of people that want to do that. It's about people that have lost their job due to COVID and can't return. So while it might have been nice to get this benefit for the last little while, if you can go back to work, you have to go back to work. With employment lawyer Andrew Goldberg talking about, uh, well, returning to work and, and serve and a number of other things that are impacting so many people these days uh, because of COVID-19. Let me ask you about that because uh, uh, the stats I saw about uh, complaints about uh, workplace environments and, and you know, the, the safety involved. And I, I anticipate a lot of the uh, complaints that are being made these days are probably very legitimate saying, you know, is it going to be safe? We don't want to get the virus. But 4,300 unsafe workplace complaints filed in Ontario during COVID-19. 4,300, 265 work refusals where they just said, I'm not going back until this gets fixed. Now, do those all get investigated? They do, but, you know, I've been reading up more about them. And and the issue more than anything is, uh, you know, these investigations are not necessarily done in person. So these investigators, I understand, are doing a lot of these um, inspections over the phone where they're speaking to the employer and uh, speaking to the employee and trying to get an understanding of what's going on and not going on. And, you know, the, the numbers look bad because there's 4,000-something, uh, you know, as you said, applications to uh, have an inspector come in and, and review the place, but the workplace. But, uh, you know, not that many um, refusal-to-work situations have been approved. So the real question is why that is. I mean, number one, it, it could just be possible that these inspectors need to make more of an effort to go to the workplace, uh, although, you know, they may not prefer to do so. It's kind of hypocritical to some degree to tell employees that, oh, everything's fine, everything's safe, you should be at work when these inspectors themselves are not willing to attend that workplace um, to confirm, you know, whether things are in fact as safe as they should be. The second possibility, though, quite frankly, is 
there's a lot of just simple, easy fixes to many of the problems that people have with respect to workplace safety. And, you know, whether it be uh, mandating that an employer requires employees to wear PPE, whether they have social distancing measures in place, uh, whether they have, you know, hand washing stations, certain uh, dividers, physical dividers, or, or things of that nature. And the inspector over the phone or in person or over video conference can implement that change very quickly and and then it's done. The issue's over. So that, that also could be the, uh, a possibility. Obviously, I haven't been involved in all 4,000 complaints, but, you know, <laughs> it is scary to some degree how many complaints have been made and how little uh, has been, you know, done in terms of uh the complaints being upheld. And, and that's the information I've received, too. Uh, the, the only actually one of them was actually deemed to be valid, uh, which doesn't mean that there weren't some concerns with some of the other ones. But as you say, just said, yeah, you know what, you should put a shield there. Okay, fine. Okay, we're good to go. Uh, so, you know, those things are resolvable, I guess, in a situation like that. But uh, And again, we have to assume that people are just being a little bit nervous about this because we keep hearing about the second wave and everything else. Now, there's another element to this, too, that, that I wanted to get into, and it's a recent announcement that the Premier made about what's going to be opening up. And we know that some jurisdictions, including the GTA and Hamilton, of course, are, are still excluded. We're, we're stuck down here in the dark ages while some of the rest of the province is going to move on. But one of the elements he did talk about, Andrew, was daycare. Now, if, if a, a, a person who's been laid off... Uh, gets the call back and says, okay, I want you to start coming back, and, and you've got young kids, you're going to say, well, wait a second, wait a second. I, 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 I don't want to say no because I'm afraid I get cut off on CERB. But on the other hand, I was counting on daycare. I mean, before CERB or COVID hit, we had daycare. Well, it's going to come back, but it's not coming back in the same way. It's going to take a long time to get back up to full speed on this. So if they called me back and said, I've got to start working this coming Monday, I'm going to say, I can't get, I can't get daycare. What am I supposed to do? Can you refuse to go back on that basis? That'll be a very situational uh, type of analysis. So as you discussed, uh, Doug Ford indicated that child care centers are going to be uh, reopened. The thing, though, is that there's going to be a limit in place of 10 staff and children per center. Many mm-hmm. of these centers used to hold, you know, maybe 40 children, 50 children, 100 children. So, you know, although these um, establishments are being reopened, it's definitely not being reopened to full capacity. So with respect to an employee's obligations uh, in the face of child care obligations, the answer is it depends. What it depends on is, <clears throat> are you one of the individuals who was the lucky one whose child care center you know, gave you a call and said, hey, we're back open and we have a spot for you. Um, and you as an employee also have to do everything you can to canvas whether child care, uh, whether your child care obligations can be met through um, these centers or through some family member helping to watch your kid or through some other avenue. It's not enough for you to simply say, well, I prefer to be home with my children. You do as an employee have to canvas whether there are alternate means available uh, to help accommodate your child care obligation. Now, if you're one of the unlucky people who say, uh, who, who find out that no, you know, based on the limits of the child care centers, your child is not welcome back at this time um, to be looked after, and there's really no other recourse available to you, then by all means, you can go to your employer and say, listen, I have child care obligations. I've canvassed all the possible ways that, you know, I can do something about this and return to work. But at the moment, there's nothing I can do. And if that's the case, 
absolutely you're entitled to uh, remain home with your children to take care of them. But what's going to be critical is that you do make those efforts to go out and see if there's anything that you can do. So there's a you know, that'll happen naturally. If there's only a limit of 10 people, including staff, staff and children at these centers, uh, you know, the likelihood of you getting your child back in is going to be low. And if you're not one of the lucky ones to get them back in, uh, you're, you know, by all means, you can remain home and, and continue to take care of your children. I, and you're right. Each individual case is going to be, I guess, judged differently. Uh, let's work on the assumption that both spouses are, are working. And you know, if one gets called back and says, "No, I don't. I don't have daycare." I, the first question is, they, as an employer, I might ask is, "Well, what about your spouse? Are they at home? Because if they are, then they can look after the kids." So there's, there's going to have to be some discussion, some back and forth, I guess, about this to determine exactly who is eligible for this as well, and and who gets called back to work first. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I indicated before, you have to do whatever you can to see if some arrangement can be made. So it's not about what's most convenient or what is most ideal. It's about really, is there anything I can do that's reasonable um, to the point of being unduly difficult for me to to help deal with my child care obligation? So if there's two parents uh, and one of them can watch the children, or they can split up the child care duties. Maybe one, you know, watches for the morning, one watches for the afternoon, and then both individuals are able to tell their employer, hey, you know, if I shift my schedule from this time to that time, um, I can do it. I can return to work. You know, that flexibility needs to be there. You can't just take a hardline approach and say, well, I prefer to be home with my child all day and and there's not much I'm willing to do to be flexible in that regard. That's that's just not going to fly. So you do have to make the efforts, and uh, I'd be very wary about not doing so and, and the fact that that um, could be very bad for you. The, if, if you don't make those efforts, an employer, by all means, can take the position that, um, you know, you haven't done your part and, you know, they don't have to accommodate uh, your child care obligation. Andrew Goldberg, employment lawyer and associate at Sanfiro 2 Market LLP. Uh, a very fluid situation. I mean, these are things that are changing actually by the day in some situations like this. And uh, the more information we can get, of course, the more informed decisions people can make on this. Uh, employmentlawyer.ca is a good place to go, or you can simply call the guys at uh, Sanfiro 2 Market, and uh, they can help you out with this. Andrew, as always, I thank you for this. Uh, stay healthy, and we'll talk again in a few days. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure to be on. Take care now. Andrew Bye-bye. Goldberg. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Everybody has taken a hit because of COVID-19. We all know about here in Ontario, the the big shutdown that occurred uh, right in the middle of March. And uh, with valid reasons, we all get that. And I think most people anyway were on side when that happened. But now we're starting to look at some of the numbers and flattening the curve and uh, fewer uh, incidences of positive testing for COVID-19. Uh, has led the government, the, both the federal and provincial governments right across the country, to uh, start reintegrating and opening up again in various forms. Uh, some a little more aggressive than others. Uh, Alberta, Jason Kenney just announced the other day that casinos, uh, swimming pools, everything are, are going to be opening up there and restaurants, and etc. Uh, not that fast in Ontario, but the Premier did make an announcement uh, earlier this week about reopening and suggesting that uh, some jurisdictions, 34 as a matter of fact, uh, public health units uh, were allowed to go to stage two. Ten of them, including Hamilton, Toronto, Burlington, and uh, Haldeman and Norfolk, uh, among others, were said, no, not so fast. You guys aren't going to do this. Uh, well, 
two mayors, Haldeman Mayor Ken Hewitt and uh, Norfolk Mayor Crystal Chop, decided to do something about it. Uh, they went and got haircuts, which is defying the laws and the rules that have been put in place by the province. Uh, and this is how the Premier responded. It wasn't longer than two to three weeks ago that we had the two mayors from there, uh, you know, on, I remember on TV shouting and screaming saying they're going to fine any cottager that comes up. We didn't have the capacity, they were saying. We had one ventilator. We have a small hospital. We don't want anyone up there. And all of a sudden, bingo, they're, they're out there getting a haircut saying they want everyone to come up. I get it. Things change. I, I get it. But, like, you can't have it both ways. You can't have your cake and eat it, too, one way or another. Well, a uh, well-groomed Haldeman Mayor Ken Hewitt uh, joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. Ken, thanks so much for the time. How are you doing today? Well, not too bad. How are you, Bill? Good, good. I've seen you sitting on some of the TV hits here, too. Uh, you're one of the few people in southern Ontario that's had a haircut in the last little while. So, I mean, I, we're jealous and envious of you, I guess, to a certain extent. Talk to us about, about why you decided to, to, to react in this fashion to, to the provincial announcement. Well, as you know, I was on the show with you not too long ago about the uh, issue from our chief medical yep. officer on the uh, cottagers. And, and just the same as the statement the premier made about us shouting and hollering is, is, is absolutely untrue as it is with him consulting with us local mayors and our chief medical officers about this, this phased in reopening. And, and just to be clear, Bill, my, my issue isn't about Haldeman Norfolk being included into phase two or, or left in phase one. My issue is, is that we've been hearing we're all in this together. And I hear that as the province is all in this together. And I believe truthfully that we should be opening up consistently across the province the same. So if, if we're not good enough in Hamilton or Toronto or Haldeman Norfolk, we shouldn't be good enough in the Muskokas or Brantford or anywhere else that has been open. Ken, let me ask you about that. And, and consultation is a big problem here, because I've heard this from other mayors and other jurisdictions. Mayor Eisenberg has talked to us about this. Mary Ann Mead Ward in Burlington, who we're going to talk to in just a couple of minutes, has talked about the, the lack of communication that goes on. Uh, we're told that there seems to be some sort of a communication chain between medical officers of health and uh, some of the provincial representatives, but not at the political end of things. Has that been your experience, too? Well, it's, it's, that's, that's why I'm talking to you today, Bill. It's, we haven't had any communication, not even with our sitting member, let alone with the premier's office. And, and speaking with our local chief medical officers, there was no communication, no consultation wow. with respect to this phased in opening. So, so go ahead. I'll finish that so, sentence. So, okay. so, so that, that, that becomes the concern from our end is, it's not, as I say, I'm, as you know, for many years, I'm here and I've always been here stating the obvious. I will represent the people and the businesses in my community. I'm not saying that we should be opening, but I'm saying that if Brantford's good enough to open, if the Muskokas are good enough to open, then we all should be open. And if Hamilton and Toronto and Haldeman Norfolk can't get there yet, then nobody else should be opening because you have taxpaying businesses in your community that can open today but the people supporting those businesses can go down to Brantford and support them. That's unfair and not right, in my opinion. 
Well, and that's, uh, what, a 15-minute drive, 20-minute drive where they can go to Simcoe, they can go to Brantford. There's a number of different places where they can go, uh, which is really going to continue to hurt your businesses. That's It's a valid point to be made here. Uh, about you know whether or not this is fair. What about the validation for this? Uh, uh, the premier went on to say it. There's another clip. I'm not going to play it on, on air, but I mean, I, I'm sure most people have heard it right now. Uh, trying to validate the decision to not include uh, Haldeman in Norfolk, and this by saying, "Well, you guys had a big spike," uh, which my understanding was, uh, Ken, was a number of those positive cases were in uh, in long-term care facilities, nursing homes, uh, which it could be argued don't have much of an impact about local businesses opening or not because they're probably not going to be going to them. They're going to stay in those facilities. That's, that's a fair statement. We had, we've had two outbreaks. One was the long-term care center, which happened before the lockdown, which has been completely maintained, contained, and out of, under control. And we have a, uh, a farm uh, that had an outbreak, and that has been contained and, and under control. So if you remove those two incidents and look at the rest of the community-driven spread, we're no different and just as consistent with the average in the rest of the province. Because uh, we have similar situations, as you know, in the news of the last couple of days. Uh, I know that our medical officers have talked about a, a spike in, in a younger demographic, in the 20-year-old demographic, but most of the cases that we've seen uh, have been in actually just two specific long-term care facilities. Uh, and you wonder if that's the kind of statistic that's going on. But i got to ask you this broader question here. Uh, you've been in the game long enough, and I mean the, pol- the political game, Ken, uh, to, to understand the, the realities of these things. Uh, when he was asked to respond to what you and, and to Mayor Chop, uh, what they did yesterday, what you guys did with the haircuts, uh, he referenced this whole thing about, well, you know, they were the ones making all sorts of noise. Uh, is this a payback in some way, shape, or form? I, I, yeah, I, I, I hope not, Bill. I, I, as I said, I, I support the Ford government just about everything he's done managing this, this uh, pandemic. I think he's done a bang up job. This particular issue and suggesting he's consulted with us and suggesting that, that, that we're shouting and hollering that we want to be included. It's, that's not the issue. The issue is it's all or none. And, and that truly is the issue. And unfortunately, you know, we had to go to the extremes we did. And, uh, and you know, as you know, politicians aren't, um, you know, we're, we're, we're not absent from making mistakes. And, and, I, and I truly, uh, you know, have to apologize to many of the people in my community who have been offended by my decision yesterday because uh, the intent was uh, to, to get the message home, to drive what we've been trying to do and, and, and get the premier's attention. But the method was, uh, in my opinion, was a mistake, and I own that. Yeah, there has been some uh, some feedback. I know that uh, one of the local uh, institutions down there actually, I guess, uh, posted a lot of the stuff that you, and, and the video of you guys doing this. And I, I actually was sent a letter today from uh, one of your constituents. Uh, I won't read it to you because there's some uh, pretty colorful language in here. And I guess this is probably uh, uh, probably uh, you know not the only one that you've received in a situation like this. Uh, so so obviously there's been mixed reaction from your constituents on this, and and whatever their rationale is for being uh, angry. At you and and uh, and mayor chop for what you're doing uh i I guess when there's going to be a sign of protest like this the 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 obvious question we need to ask eventually is is this going to be effective are you going to get the premier's ear is there going to be a change in the communication or lack of communication that's going on have you had any discussion at all you you do have a local mpp that's a part of the government body there have you had discussions there well as i said earlier that's that's part of the problem i think is that we haven't had those discussions and and i hope that we can have more meaningful discussions moving forward and 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 again as i said 
the message is, has been lost in, in the process or the method. And, and unfortunately, as you know, with media, sometimes that happens. Today, what we're trying to do is, is ensure that all parts of the province open up fairly in the same so that all businesses can enjoy getting back to work and gaining a gainful income that they've lost for the last three, four months. What are they looking for from you and from Hamilton and from others there? The, the, the Premier says he's going to try to reevaluate this stuff every Monday. I guess they're going to make announcements on on this. I mean, is is it, since the numbers are down, and aside from the, as you say, the aberrations of a couple of long-term care facilities, and, and those are not insignificant. I mean, I, we're not trying to downplay those. those. That's still important numbers. But at the same token, uh, I mean, what, can you do in the next five days that you guys haven't already been doing to try to uh, curry the favor of the people that are making the decisions? Well, and that's a great question. And again, one that I have not been able to have the discussion with the premier's office or the Ford government in any shape is because we're so saddled with so many uh, migrant workers and farmers in the area and which I support by the way. uh, But that being said, the risks, uh, with the congregated uh, bunkers, bunkhouses that they have are there and real. Are we at the risk of closing or keeping our businesses closed for, for uh, you know, an indefinite period of time because we happen to have uh, the, the farming community in this area? That's a real concern for us. And so I, I don't know what that number looks like. And I that's, again, part of our issues and why we believe we should have been consulted along the way with this particular phased-in process. Well, and therein lies part of the problem. I mean, because I know that there were special regulations put in place for the migrant workers, which, by the way, and I don't need to tell you this, but just to remind our listeners, is essential for your economy. I mean, this is this is what makes that spin. And, and, and the fact that there was a concern about what was going on with some of those things, uh, my understanding, the information I've received on this, Ken, is that by and large, the people that are hiring those workers have filled all those speculation you know they've done the isolation they've done the quarantining everything they were supposed to do but on the same token you don't know if there's going to be one or two flare-ups like this but as you mentioned with the 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 one major business that uh, was impacted by this it was contained in a pretty orderly fashion i that's the information we received anyway it, it and that's correct i mean our, you know shanker uh, our chief medical officer has been very aggressive sometimes as we spoke uh, in cases too aggressive but but he has been very aggressive in containment and, and ensuring the protection of this community. And I commend him for that and commend him for giving us the advice. But here we are today wondering what is it going to be in terms of numbers that we need to get to? And, and what happens if we open next week and we have another farm outbreak? Are they going to close the businesses down? These are questions that we don't have answers to, and, and unfortunately, this phased-in approach didn't allow us to have that opportunity to discuss that. From a competitive standpoint, uh, the, the, the fact that literally people that are 10 minutes, 15 minutes down the road are, are going to be allowed to open and, and your community is not, what's that going to do to local economies? I mean, you, you guys have been you know, kicked in the gut a couple of times here with some other situations that have closed down businesses over the last eight or nine years, Ken. Uh, we're all in this one. If I, I, had, I hate to sound trite and use the same phrase that uh, the Premier used, but we all are in this. But it seems as if there seems to be two sets of rules here, uh, which puts your community and, frankly, I guess Hamilton's community to a certain extent and Burlington's at a, a disadvantage here. That's and the, that's my been my argument. My point is that that we are we're allowing the mobility of people in the province to go wherever they choose to go, 
and we're going to open up parts of the province. So we're incentivizing those to get in their car, drive down the road to where a business is open, and that poor business that's sitting in your neighborhood or mine is stuck closed because of numbers that we don't know uh, are, are good, bad, or ugly. And, and that's the challenge that I'm having with this decision. There's one other question. I, I, I know your time is tight, and I appreciate you jumping in with us today, Ken. Uh, I asked the Premier this a couple of weeks ago when he was on the program, and, and he talked about that. This is before they started the, the reintegration and the rollout program, but he talked about how he wanted to do it. And uh, he said it's going to be based on, on you know, advice from the medical profession. And I asked, who? who who's advising you? Is it Dr. Williams, who's the Chief Medical Officer of Health? Are there other people here that are involved in this? Uh, he didn't have an answer for me then, and, and subsequently, and even as late as uh, yesterday, I guess, uh, during his daily session, a number of people asked him the very same question, and they're still not forthcoming with that information. Who is advising them, and what information are they giving them? You, I don't know that, and my, I guess you don't know that either, do you? No, and, and, and again, we have uh, a number of med- uh, districts, and uh, our chief medical officer knows Haldeman Norfolk better than anybody, and if he is capable of making the decision to to issue orders stopping cottages from coming out he should be able to be given the authority to make the decision when the province says i'll leave it with the chief medical officers locally to decide whether they should open or not that puts us in a position where we can control our destiny and we can we can decide if the businesses are opening up in a safe uh, uh, good uh, responsible manner and we can support them, and, and we can make that decision locally. And that's where I think the breakdown is in this, this process. Well, and that's a part of a broader discussion that we really don't have time to get into. But, uh, you know, when, when the government announced some of their new policies, uh, I guess it was last year, before COVID, uh, and they talked about, you know, tearing down some of the district health offices and things of this nature, uh, you know, local decisions should be made locally and instead of, all you know, everything at Queen's Park making, this is how we're going to do this. Uh, and and, and it doesn't that's necessarily have to impact cost or anything else. But it's, this is, I think, a, a microcosm of that, Ken, where they're simply saying, wait a second, we know what we're doing here, you know, as we do in Hamilton. If we think it's safe to go back to work, give us the power to do that. Uh, you know, that's that's really what, what medical offices of health are for, aren't they? Well, and that's, I think that's that, that would be, I think, when we review the, you know, the, the decisions made, and again, I, you know, it's easy to point fingers, and that's not what I want to do. I, I want to see us come out of this as safely and economically as possible and see everybody get back to work in a way that we were once before. That being said, I think there are, as you say, conversations that need to be had where locally we could have made some decisions along the way that could enable our, our businesses and some of the people working in the communities uh, get back to work in a time that's more effective or efficient. Those are, as you say, more conversations down the road. But today, the consultation, opening parts of the province, not parts of the province, is, in my opinion, creating winners and losers. And and we have businesses that are truly suffering today. So Monday mornings now become like Christmas morning for us. You know, we have to say, well, are we going to be included? You know, what's going to be under the tree for us? Are we going to open or not? And we're in the same boat as you guys. 
Uh, yeah. Mayor Ken Hewitt, as always, uh, Ken, thank you so much for the time. Great talking with you, and uh, continue good luck as we uh, both strive, I guess, to, to get into the Phase 2 program. Thanks for this. Yep, thanks, Bill, for having me. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.